You're listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Kobernack. It is our desire that you will be helped by this Bible message. You know, I, I one of the things that I think is important when you talk about updating everything about Russia, of course, I'm not going to get into all the politics. If you want to ask me something about that afterwards, I'll be glad to give you a little bit of a perspective that... Uh, uh, the different trusted news sources may not present because it's maybe not exactly the way that you've heard it. You know, because you can always trust what you see on the news. Everybody knows that, you know, they present everything fair and balanced, right? Uh, yeah, right. Um, but that really isn't the important thing because there are eternal souls everywhere. There are eternal souls in Russia and Ukraine and different places, and that's what the most important thing is. When you talk about going into Russia and doing church planting, of course, 26 years ago, you're talking about entering into the former Soviet Union after the collapse. When God called me into missions and I thought about Russia, I thought this is impossible, of course, because it was the Soviet Union. Uh, but during the times when I, while I was training for the ministry, everything changed. Gorbachev came to power, the Soviet Union collapsed, and all of a sudden, the doors were open. Going into Russia after the collapse of the Soviet Union is like going into the Wild West. Um, I've had a pistol pointed at me twice in my times there. I've been interviewed by the KGB three times. Um, all of those things, very interesting events and, and whatever else. But you really are talking about going into a land of 70 years of desolation, of spiritual uh, idolatry, of spiritual... A desert land where there's nothing because there, there are no seminaries operating. There are churches are, are being persecuted and closed, some being torn down and destroyed. So you're talking about going into a country not like going, say, to the Philippines or some other place like that where after World War II, Douglas MacArthur wanted 5,000 missionaries to go in and they laid a foundation which now is seeing a great harvest that's coming about in the Philippines. You're talking about going into a nation that has, has for 70 years intentionally uprooted everything having to do with the gospel. The churches that were there were functioning in secret. Some of them were open, but in, in general there was persecution of the churches there in Russia. So when you're talking about going into a place like that, what, you're, what you have to do, or your mindset has to be that I'm a first-generation missionary, basically. That means that I've got to go in and I've got to dig to put the footers in so that we can lay a foundation. Because if you don't have the footers, if you don't have a good foundation, it doesn't matter what you build. It's on sinking sand. It's going to collapse. And so really for the first 15 years uh, in Russia, it really was a labor of really digging and really planting and really sowing the seed and watering it, preparing a strong foundation to see what God was going to do in later generations. And my mindset had to be one of thinking that, okay, my responsibility is to lay the foundation and maybe there'll be another generation that will come along and they'll get to see the harvest. And that's okay. I'm, I'm good with that. I, sure, I would like to see, you know, be involved in some great revival and something great going on in Russia, but more importantly is building something that's going to last. And so really going in, the idea was to, as we, as we started having our services, uh, we would have one person from one family and another person from a second family. And there were just individuals that were, that were gathered together. It was a church. We were worshiping the Lord. 
But it wasn't family units worshiping the Lord together. It wasn't family units rearing their children for the Lord. That was something that had to be built up to. And so after seeing, well, one of the, one of the young men that got saved probably the first month or couple months that I was in Russia, he was uh, 13 at the time. And, you know, he's getting ready to turn 40, so I'm giving him a hard time about it. Uh, but he picks on me that I'm even older, so I don't guess. <laughs> Uh, but you know, he's, he's now married. He, his mother got saved. His sister got saved. And he's got children that he's rearing for the Lord. And his son, who is now about six years old, he just, he just thinks that he wants to be just like Pastor Kevin. <laughs> and, you know, so sometimes he'll call me and he'll say, he'll say I've, been, I've been studying about, about the planets and whatever else. And he'll, he'll tell me all about that and whatever else. And, so the exciting thing that we've come to the point of seeing now is that there are three generations sometimes in our church now of family units worshiping the Lord together. And really just seeing that there are families that ha are, are rearing their children for the Lord because they've seen it done. They haven't been just taught the theory from me teaching them saying this is what you need to do. Of course they got to see our kids growing up, you know, and uh, things like that, but you know, there's always the idea of, well, you're you're not a, you're you're kind of us, but you're not really completely Russian. That was that was one of the things that occurred in business meetings in the church when I first got early on. I couldn't win because either it was, well, you're not Russian, so you really can't understand, or the other argument, if they didn't like what I want, what it was going on, well, you've been here long enough, you ought to know better. <laughs> So we had a business meeting. I said, okay, guess what? Those don't work anymore, okay? They canceled each other out a long time ago, so we're going to go forward. So, but we have these families now that in the, not just in theory of what they've heard, but in practice because they've seen it done. They've seen one, one generation that has reared their family, and they've seen some good things that have been done. They've seen some mistakes, and so now there's another generation rearing their children for the Lord. Um, we have two young men who have... Uh, uh, expressed an interest to go in and, in the ministry and begin preaching, so I've started teaching a class in systematic theology and a class in homiletics. That means Bible doctrines and preaching. And so what we're doing is we're doing one chapter in the book in systematic theology and we're doing something like inspiration. And then I'll have them from there prepare a sermon on something about inspiration and then they teach a Sunday school class talking about something about inspiration. So they're they're taking the theory that they're learning and it's becoming more than theory because they're applying it and they're, and they're teaching it. And so like we did one chapter on the names of God. So I said, okay, you've got to choose one of the names of God. And that represents one of the characteristics of God. Now here's your, your, your job. You're not going through just one paragraph expositionally and explaining it. But you're going to have to search the scriptures now and you're going to have to find in the scriptures where God demonstrates that character that's represented by his name. So it's more of a topical uh, way of developing a sermon. So they had to go through and they had to find in Scripture where this characteristic of God was developed. And I said, now that's not good enough. Now I want you to tell me what that means to me. So what? God has this characteristic. So how does that apply to me? And so then they're having to expand their understanding or their ability to develop so that they're saying, okay, when I bring it down to a personal level, what does this character, characteristic of God mean to me personally? And so they were teaching a Sunday school class on, on that. 
And so it's just kind of been exciting, especially in the past couple years, to see the church kind of, um, it's come to a point where it has its own personality. And as a body of believers, then they are encouraging one another, they're strengthening one another, and then we're seeing this generation that's coming along that, you know, that's, that's the future of the church. And so we're excited to see where, you know, where God's going to take the, the ministry in the future and, you know, how long God has us there, we really don't know. Of course, at this point in time with uh, the things that are going on, we have permanent residency in the Russian Federation, which means that we have the rights to live there. We don't have citizenship. We don't have uh, Russian citizenship because in the past it required us to renounce our American citizenship. That's changed. They don't require that now, but honestly, we've been living there long enough with permanent residency that we're kind of we're kind of used to it. So we're we, why change it if it works? If it's working, don't don't fiddle with it. Um, one of the limitations of that is that we can only be out uh, 180 days out of any one year. So when we come on a furlough, it's been six years since our last furlough, so when we come on a furlough, it means that we can be here for like 150 days and then we need to keep like 30 days in reserve in case there's something, an emergency or something comes up. So we came here at the end of April and uh, Lord willing, we're gonna be going back to Russia in the middle of, somewhere around the middle of September. I talked to them last night, uh, the church there, and they were kind of excited that, you know, to hear about some of the things that were going on here. Russians are very curious about what's going on in America. Uh, they're perplexed about some of the things that are going on in America. <laughs> I, I, I'll just th throw this out as a side, this isn't a, per se an update on the ministry, but just say, Russia, uh, a few years ago, they put into their constitution that the Bible is protected literature. It can never be considered terrorist or extremist literature. It has protected position in Russian society. Putin got up several years ago. He said, we are a Christian nation. We're going to stay a Christian nation. If you don't like it, you go live somewhere else. Uh, they changed the constitution, so now there is a definition of marriage in the const Russian constitution that's a biological male and a biological female. And this year, they just passed a law banning every form of alternative life advertising in any way, shape, or form, in any format across all of the Russian format of Federation. So it's completely banned now. It used to be banned just to minors, but this year they, they expanded it to say, you know what, we are not going to have it any, anywhere advertised in anything, in any way, shape, or form in the Russian Federation. So. So they look at America and they say, wait, 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 you, you, it's a Christian nation. They sent you to us as a missionary, and what are they doing to their children? Come on. Yeah. Why are they mutilating their children? Yes, and uh, why, why are the Christians letting this happen? And why is it that more people are not infuriated that children's lives are being destroyed? Yeah. You know, and so... As much as Russians look to America as the, the land of opportunity and, you know, whatever, they, there is a, a, a degree to which they are quite perplexed at some of the latest developments that are going on in the United States. And I, I try to temper it and say, well, listen, you know, yes, there are things happening, but just because you see it in the news doesn't mean that that's the way things are everywhere. Uh, I said, I'm, I'm from North Carolina. I grew up on the coast of North Carolina and, you know, 
us Carolina folk, we aren't exactly like that. Now, Chapel Hill, well, that's... <laughs> Whenever you do a fingerprint, you have to wipe the blood off somewhere, so it's kind of troubling. I graduated from UNC, so I can say that, right? I can get away with that. Um, so, you know, I, what is God going to do in Russia in the future? I don't know. You know, 70 years of atheism, and yet now they've made very definitive changes to their constitution uh, really enshrining Christianity and Christian doctrine as part of their culture and, and making steps to, to really potentially allow God to do some great things over there. So all the more, you know, as I look at the, the foundation that has been prepared in the city of Krasnyarsk, and I back up and say, the city of Krasnyarsk is one and a half million people. It's huge. Um, it's, the cent it's, it's located in the very center of Siberia. Siberia is a geographical region like, saying the Midwest. So it's located on the Yenisei River. This divides eastern and western uh, Russia. And uh, it has, uh, how really, I guess it has a, a little bit of a tolerant personality just because people who were sent to Siberia in the past, it was kind of a death sentence. And so they kind of banded together to support one another just for survival's sake. And that mentality is kind of live and let live has, has continued. So we really have not faced any uh, persecution in, that we have really seen in, in Russia. Yeah, I know that there are some places uh, that you see, you see some things on the news about protests and things that are going on right now. And I would just say, well, they protest in uh, Portland also, so, so what? doesn't mean that it represents America. And just because you see something that happens in Moscow or in Petersburg, it really is not representative of Heartland, Russia. Of course, the city of Krasnoyarsk is as far from... Okay, Russia is two Americas side to side. That's how big it is. So for us to fly from where we live in Krasnoyarsk to Moscow is like flying from Raleigh-Durham to Anchorage. And that's only halfway. So if it's, it's faster to fly from London to New York than it is from Magadan, Russia, to Moscow, Russia. That's just how big it is. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to see a lot of, uh, in the news, you may see a lot of different personalities represented in things that are happening, but that's normal. Different cities have different personalities, and different regions have different characteristics. Uh, you know, here in North Carolina, we know how to do barbecue, and in Texas, they don't. <laughs> I had to get that one in for Carolina. So, so, <laughs> so you're going to see some, uh, some things. You may see things on the news that, that may be representative of something that happens or a quirk or whatever, but it doesn't mean that it's really reflecting what's going on in the Russian Federation. And I think that um, the, the, the foundation is being laid for God to be do, able to do something great in Russia. And so I guess one of the greatest prayer requests is that God will raise up another generation of, of people who will serve the Lord. You know, my wife and I sat down and we, we, we went back over a, a 10 or 12 year period and we counted somewhere around 60 missionary family units that were in Russia over that period of time. There are nine who remain there now. 
and one of them is going to leave next year. So, you know, of course, you know, God is, is raising up uh, the, the Russian people who have been trained and, and have gone through generations since the fall of communism who are now working to evangelize their own country. But it would be great to see more missionaries that would want to come to Russia. It's not an easy field. It's not, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's not someplace that you go and you think that oh, things are just going to happen like that. No, it doesn't. In fact, one of the greatest struggles uh, in, and one of the ways to understand some of the spiritual concepts of what's going on in Russia is you have to understand that Russians have a cultural understanding of repentance that is completely different than the biblical definition of repentance. So let's say... 20 years ago, you wanted to fill a stadium full of people, and you, you had you know, thousands and thousands of people show up, and you say, now, how many of you would like to go to heaven when you die? Well, they'd all say, well, of course. How many of you then would like to, to maybe ask, ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins? That you know you're a sinner, and you want Jesus to forgive your sins. Well, they'll say, okay. How many of you are willing to repeat this prayer after me? And they say, okay. And they do that, and they walk out, and they go back to their lives just the way it was. Because the Russian concept of repentance means I have a list of sins, and I go to the church, and I go to the priest, and, and I have this list, and I start naming them off. And he says to me, okay, if you want these, this portion of your sins, if you want those forgiven, you need to say this kind of prayer this number of times. You need to light a can these candles, you need to put an offering in, and you need for me to bless you so that those things are forgiven. So they go and they do all of those things. They say those prayers and whatever, the priest blesses them. And, and to them, it's kind of like a whiteboard, and they just kind of have erased off a little bit of it so that the balance has shifted a little bit in their favor. That's what they think repentance means. So if you say, do you want to repent? They say, oh, well, why not? Because to them, it doesn't mean that I have to change. It doesn't mean anything in my heart, in my life. Nothing changes because I, I can go back to an immoral lifestyle. All I need to do is come to church and just, just name off the list and, and, and put money in the, in the offering and light a candle and have the priest bless me and say the rosary or whatever it is several times, and, and I'm good. And then I go back and I live the way I want to, and that's what they think repentance is. And so, really, in, in reaching the Russian people, one of the greatest things is it involves uh, getting them, building a friendship or a relationship with them so that you can challenge them with the fact that their, their idea or their concept of repentance is really not what the Bible teaches. And once they're willing to step back from that and say, okay, that's what I understand culturally, but maybe I am wrong. So show me how I'm wrong. And so then you open the scriptures and you show to them what biblical repentance is, and, and then the conflict occurs in their hearts. And then it's like, okay, culturally, this is what I've always been taught, and this is what the Bible says, and I know the Bible's true. There's only one translation in, in Russian, so that's all we have. We don't have to worry about lots of different, you know, conflicting translations. And, and so they look at it and they say, oh, I absolutely know it's the Word of God. And so then, then they have to process it. And so one of the things that, you know, just pray that God would continue to do that work in the heart of the Russian people so that their, their minds and their hearts would come to the understanding of what true biblical repentance is all about.
So that's a little bit of an update of some of the things that are going on in Russia. Um, like I said, I'm not going to delve into the arena of politics. If you want to ask me something about that after the service, I'll be glad to take some time and give you a kind of an update or an explanation of some of the cultural things that are going on. But if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 10. You know, as Paul is talking to the Romans, he's talking to people who are representative uh, of the greatest culture, the greatest, quote-unquote, nation of the time. Uh, the, the Roman culture had changed the world, and, and he's addressing the, these, these people concerning his heart's desire for the different nationalities which are represented within the Roman Empire. So as we look at Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Sounds like what we're saying about repentance in Russia, doesn't it? Uh, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh of, on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whomsoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes. Verily their sound went into all the earth, and their words into the ends of the world. So we see here in this section of scripture that we read that there is the motive to see people saved, there's the message to see people saved, and there's the mission to see people saved. All three of these things are the burden that Paul has for the people that he's speaking to, this group of, of Romans culturally that he's trying to get them to understand. Of course, first of all, his heart's desire is for Israel. 
But he's not limiting in any way that the gospel applies only to the Jewish believers because obviously when he speaks in verse 12, he says, There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there is no limitation as to him saying, Well, the gospel is only for this group of people, only for this era, only for this nation, only for this language group, or any of that. He's saying, the same Lord is rich unto every generation, unto every people, unto every language throughout the whole world, that the gospel goes forth so that people from every place, every corner of the world, every generation, every linguistic group can come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But he says to them, do not be deceived, do not be mistaken, because there are those who try to create righteousness out of thin air. He warns them that they are ignorant of God's righteousness, and so they go about creating their own form of righteousness, whether it's a form of laws that must be kept, whether it's like we were talking about with repentance, you just name them off, you do certain rituals, you go through this, this process, and then there is a form or a degree of righteousness that is obtained through that. And he says, do not be deceived. That has nothing to do with what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. He even says in verse 5, Moses described the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. And so the law was the schoolmaster pointing us to Christ because it defines for us our absolute failure. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The law didn't exist so that somebody could, could live by it and then claim that they were righteousness. Right. They're righteous. That's what Jesus did, though. Yeah. He's the only one who did it. The law existed because, so that it would condemn us because where there is no law, there is no understanding of guilt. Right. If there's no speed limit, then I can do what I want. <laughs> Even when there is a speed limit, sometimes I do what I want. <laughs> That's why, where's the brother who's the former police guy here? Yeah, there you are, yeah. I'm going to let you leave the parking lot before I do. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Where there's no law, there is no concept of guilt. You don't know that you've broken something. You don't know that you've fallen short if there's not a standard that's set. You know what an A means because you're given a point. Uh, what's the word in English? forgot my word in English. Scale. There we go. Sometimes I do that. I, I can think of the word in Russian. I can't think of it in English. The law existed to, to define for us how short we have fallen from righteousness so that we know how desperately we need Jesus. And he says that, that the righteousness that is given or the opportunity for us to obtain forgiveness and righteousness through Christ comes through an intellectual and a volitional component. There are two components to it. And so he's saying here in verse 9, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Those are two things. 
But then in verse 10, he explains why both components are so necessary and why it's vital that we understand what is occurring when a person comes to Jesus Christ. For with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So with the heart, man processes, the intellectual side of man processes the truth of the gospel. It processes, man processes the fact that I have sinned. I have come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Okay, so I understand where I am. I understand my status. I understand the situation, and I understand the penalty as a result of it. Hell. So the intellectual part of man then is presented with the gospel that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's it. There is only one way. And I said it this morning at the other church we were at. I said, you know... If God the Father had another way to provide salvation for mankind and he still sacrificed his son, he is a monster. The fact that God the Father sacrificed his son proved that that was the only way. And it will be eternally the only way. It will forever be God's plan for salvation. And so he says here, you got this, all of this information... Now, what are you going to do with it? With the heart, man processes it and he believes it. And then with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. You know what? When a person trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, it just can't stay inside. It's got to come out one way or another. I remember when I was a kid and uh, I was in children's church, junior church. And uh, there was one Sunday where we heard a story and I was just burdened with the fact that I, I understood that I was a sinner. I understood the consequence of sin, but there were too many people around for me to go for it. I was, you know, when God called me in the ministry, one of the, the, I never wanted to stand in front of people. I was terrified of standing in front of people. It was one of the last things I ever wanted to do. So as a, I mean, as a kid, I just, I thought, you know, I know I'm a sinner, but there is no way. And I went home that Sunday, and all week long, I was looking left and right and whatever because I thought, what if something happens? What if something happens? Because I know if I die, I'm going to hell. I know if I die, I'm going to, I'm going to go to hell. The next Sunday came, and when the invitation was given, I didn't care who was looking. <laughs> with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. You know, the Scripture has presented the... the the gospel in such a simple form that people want to complicate it. They want to add rituals to it or they want to add qualifications to it. And that's, that's completely in opposition to what Jesus did when he died on the cross. When Paul is presenting this. Paul, one of the most scholarly men, authors of Scripture, is writing this book of Romans, which is one of my favorite books in the Bible, because he goes through all of these components and all of the detailed explanation and the development of salvation that is abused by those who would say that God only saves the elect. Well, why do they do that? It's because they take chapter 8 and, and they read it where, where chapter 8 is talking about God's activity in drawing man to salvation and they leave it 
independent of the rest of Scripture where it talks about man's responsibility to respond to what God has done. The two work together in perfect harmony, and they're summarized in chapter 10. And he's saying here, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, that's pretty hypocritical of God to say, well, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. But by the way, there are only a few that can do it because I already determined who can do it. So the rest of you are just out of luck. That's just wrong. Paul says here, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he also says, well, how can that happen if they haven't heard? How can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if there's no one that's going to tell them? You know, that is the challenge to the church. As, as we, if I were to go and, and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 28 and read the Great Commission, Jesus said, all power is given unto me, and lo, I am with you always, even at the end of the world. So, all power given to Jesus, who then is with us, and then he says here in Scripture, how can they hear unless somebody goes and tells them? You know, it's been a lot of, a lot of years since I've been here. <laughs> and a lot of things have changed. First of all, Alyssa was like, I don't remember how old she was. She may have just been a, a, an infant or a toddler. And she's getting married in September. So a lot of things have changed, obviously. There have been a lot of people in this area who have lived and died and are in eternity now. And this church has the opportunity to reach people that I will never get to meet in my lifetime. The same as I have an opportunity to meet people in Russia and different places around the world as, as God sends us and as we travel. I get to meet people that you will never meet in your lifetime. And the question is, will we be faithful? How will they hear unless there is a preacher? Just as simple as the gospel is presented, the plan of spreading the gospel to the world, of fulfilling the Great Commission, is clearly defined here. Jesus didn't leave the disciples with this ominous task, you know, go you into all the world without any idea. How do we do that? Here, Paul clearly outlines it. How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they have a preacher unless he's sent? Well, who's going to send it? The church. Not a parachurch organization, not some other whatever else. It is the church that does that. And he says, how are they going to hear? And what a blessed thing it is to be the person who has the privilege of taking the gospel. But you know what? That is not just limited to the missionary. It's an opportunity that's given to every single one of us. Every one of us has the opportunity to speak the gospel. And you know, I think sometimes, just like people try to overcomplicate the gospel and add things to it, we sometimes try and overcomplicate what it means to be a witness for Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a witness for Jesus Christ? What does it mean here when he's talking about a preacher who goes, it's not that, you know, it's not like pastor who develops this sermon where everything's perfectly alliterated every Sunday, three points, you know, and an illustration, and I don't know, do you do that? Sometimes. Sometimes, okay. <laughs> Russians don't do that, by the way. It's a good thing, because I couldn't alliterate in Russian if I tried. Um, actually, I can now, but anyway. Uh, what the, he's saying here is, when we 
confess with our mouth, like in verse 10, that is preaching the gospel. Just going out and saying, you know, I, there was one day where I, I read the Bible or I saw, I heard a sermon or someone gave me a tract and I read it through and I realized that I was a sinner and I didn't know what to do with that fact. And then I started reading a little bit more and I, I learned a little bit more about Jesus. You know, it's a little bit different than everything that I've heard culturally and, and whatever else, that Jesus died for my sin. And, and really all I have to do is, is bow the knee to him, come to him and ask for his forgiveness and he gives it as a free gift. You know, that's it. That's as, that's, as, that's as difficult and as simple as it gets. It doesn't have to be that you've read the latest book on apologetics and that you can argue any, any minutia and point on uh, premillennialism or any of those things in order to be able to be a witness for Jesus Christ. You don't have to. You just have to tell what Jesus did in your life. You know, for us as believers, for us as a church, Jesus wants to reach this generation just as much as he wanted to reach that generation when Paul was speaking. And Jesus wants to reach this area just as much as he wants to reach the Philippines, Africa, Russia, or any other part of the world. And the preachers and the people that he sends forth as witnesses are the people right here. But it starts with the fact of examining our hearts and saying, am I sure that I'm born again? Do I know that I'm born again because I have the indwelling Holy Spirit? And some people say, well, tell me, explain it to me. And I'm like, well, if I have to explain it to you, then you don't got it. Because if you got it, you know it. Going forth with the gospel starts with knowing that I'm born again. And it begins even right here. You have heard the gospel. And you're accountable now to a holy God. And the question is, what, what are you going to intellectually do? What are you, how are you going to process that? And what is your will going to do in response to what it's processed? If you understood the words that were spoken tonight, and I basically, I didn't preach in Russian. <laughs> I did it in English. So you understood the words of the gospel. So you're left with the question of, what are you going to do in response to that? And Jesus calls you and he says, would you come? Would you just simply come to me and ask my forgiveness and I will freely give you eternal life? That's the first step. The second step is this. What will we do to fulfill this part? How will they hear without a preacher? And it's the opportunity that's given to each and every one of us. And the question is, will we be found faithful? Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast of Victory Baptist Church in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina, led by Pastor Jeremy Coburnett. For more information about our ministry, please visit our website at vbcrr.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.